Hi, this is Nikki Belmonte, Executive Director of the American Birding Association. I want to thank all of you who have supported this year's nesting season appeal. If you haven't had a chance to support our campaign, I'm asking you for your support now. Visit us online at aba.org appeal or call us at 800-850-2473. Our work is made possible by the generosity of donors like you. Thanks and enjoy this week's podcast. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm Nate Swick. It is a This Month in Birding episode, so I'll keep things short up top. But I do have a couple things to remind you. Well, one thing to remind you and another thing to just briefly acknowledge. First, the reminder, um, I am helping to lead an ABA trip to Panama in September. You can head to aba.org slash travel if you are interested. And you can sign up to go birding with me in beautiful Panama with the amazing Carlos Betancourt. You heard him last week. I can't wait. Should be an amazing time. And the comment, uh, a couple of weeks ago, you may remember, I talked a little bit about using Merlin on the Breeding Bird Survey. Ed Hopkins left a comment on the ABA website stating that the BBS is a single observer count and that Merlin is the equivalent of a second observer. And I want to thank Ed for making that point because it is one that I thought about a fair bit before I decided to go ahead and do it. Um, I'm, I'm not sure that Merlin isn't a second observer. I can certainly see where you would believe that, though. Um, my numbers and species were not significantly affected by its use. Uh, it certainly got a few things wrong, so you can't rely on it completely. Its sort of spatial impact is limited by the microphone that you use. And on my count, I did not count anything that Merlin found that I also did not find. So if it was a second observer, I don't know, it, it wasn't a very good one. Um, that said, we're probably pushing into kind of a gray area here. I noted that perhaps in the future that the BBS lab might actually ask volunteers to use Merlin on their roots. Um, they just as well might ask them not to. Uh, from my perspective, that would be fine too. And I would certainly understand and of course abide by that decision. But I do think we're sort of at the point where we could use some guidance. The AI has improved such that you know, the use of something like Merlin is you know, legitimately worth discussing. And perhaps that discussion will be coming in 2023. I certainly look forward to it. Anyway, onto the panel. We have Sarah Bloomers. We have Frank Izagiri. We have Miko Jimenez. We have This Month in Birding for June. That is coming up right after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the end of June 2022. I feel out of some sort of bird journalistic integrity that I need to keep talking limpkins, despite the fact that we are well beyond the point of considering anything this species is doing to be surprising this summer. Uh, but the news keeps coming, and you should all be kept apprised of this increasingly amazing, hilarious situation. As of last week, we have two new limpkin firsts. Both came on exactly the same day, one from Nebraska, where that state's first record of limpkin was seen near Omaha, and next door in Iowa, where a limpkin was seen in Lucas County. I think I might have predicted Iowa in a previous episode, maybe even Nebraska too. This is not any sort of premonition. It requires absolutely no insight whatsoever. It is just basically looking at a map and noting where limpkins haven't been yet. So uh, Wisconsin and Michigan, you are teed up. 
Over to Utah, where a very well-documented alder flycatcher was seen and notably heard in Salt Lake, where it is the first confirmed record of this species, previous reports having been frustratingly silent. And it is unusual that we talk about Yukon Territory at all in this space, and even more so that we do so twice in as many weeks. But following the thick-billed longspur last week, we've got another even more unexpected first record for the far north in a young Mississippi kite photographed at Haynes Junction, which is not too far from the Alaska Panhandle. We know kites in particular are capable of wandering, and Mississippi kite is somewhat regular in southern Ontario these days, and it has even nested in Winnipeg, Manitoba in recent years. But I don't have to tell you uh, that the Yukon Territory is way out there. Those are the rarities for the week, but for the full accounting, you can check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org slash RBA. You can also follow along with all the rare bird news as soon as it happens, for the most part, in our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook. Uh, it's time once again for this month in birding, uh, this time for June 2022, and we have uh, brought together an excellent panel this month to talk some birdie news and notes and whatever we get to. Uh, without any further ado, please let me introduce our guest for this month. First, he's a researcher in aeroecology, which I assume concerns birds a great deal, uh, currently based in Colorado. Welcome back, our friend Miko Jimenez. Hi, Miko. Hey, Nate. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And uh, next, he's my colleague here at the ABA, one of the editors of Birding Magazine, a new-ish dad. I guess it's been over a year now. Uh, lover of bird books and a regular here on the American Birding Podcast from Pittsburgh, PA. It's Frank Izagiri. Hi, Frank. Hey, everyone. Happy to be here. <clears throat> yeah. And last, certainly not least, she's one half of the podcast whose name would cause us to lose our family-friendly designation on Apple Podcasts. <laughs> uh, please use your imagination when I say that it is called Bird Shirt. Uh, after a too-long hiatus, <laughs> it's Sarah Bloomers. Hello, Sarah. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm really excited to have you all here to talk bird stuff, but it is June. It is a hot, buggy sweaty mess of a season for birding across much of the continent. I don't know, maybe not for Miko, uh, but for the rest of us. Uh, but it is a fun time to talk baby birds. Have you all seen any baby birds lately? I think I've seen probably like 50 baby robins. Oh man, that's really that's good. <laughs> Nothing more exciting. Nothing more exciting. I know I've been home too. And uh, most of the baby birds I've seen around my house are house finches that nest in the eaves underneath my, my front door. And I got two two batches out this year and now they've abandoned their uh really ugly nasty uh poopy nest uh, i need to clean that out actually this reminds me that i need to clean that out yeah the house finches are kind of popping off here in colorado too and um the one that sticks out to me though more recently is i think earlier this week i was like on a ridge and uh i could kind of like hear something i didn't i knew it was probably baby birds because it was just like a high-pitched you know, thing. And then I was like scanning this tree and I realized it was a Bullock's Oriole nest. And oh, like, nice. because I was on a ridge, I could kind of see into like the basket. And so yeah. that was really fun. It was, yeah, it was a good one. Yeah. I got to go um, earlier this month. I went with my family to uh, Hilton Head Island in South Carolina. And um, I, I went out one morning birding and I went to uh, Pinkney Island Wildlife Refuge, which is this, this kind of short walk. Uh, you go out to this uh, pond in the middle of which is this massive wader heron egret rookery. Um, and you can get like really close to white ibises and then and little blue herons and just like this massive 
sound and smell and like no you know noise and sight and just all the cool stuff green herons around the periphery and it was it was like 400 birds all just squawking and and fighting and um it's like a tenement apartment um <laughs> and they're all common species that you see everywhere but it's really neat to see them that way i love an awkward baby heron totally. <laughs> they are like the true dinosaur bird like you when really you, you really see heron. it yeah you really see the connection there <laughs> they're so ugly <laughs> <laughs> So according to a June 8th article from Audubon, we in the Florida grasshopper sparrow have something to celebrate. Yay. One of North America's most endangered birds reached a historic milestone on June 1st when the 501st Florida grasshopper sparrow was released in a central Florida prairie. So with extinction of the bird species becoming a real possibility over the last couple of years, Several conservation groups, including the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, collaborated on conservation efforts for the sparrow, whose populations were on the decline since 2019, mostly impacted by, of course, habitat loss. So with numbers down into the dozens at one time, they uh, initiated a captive breeding effort, which resulted in the release of 500 sparrows into the wild. Um, and also in issued efforts to monitor and ensure continued breeding success. Uh, the first release occurred in 2019, and by the 2020 and 21 breeding seasons, it was confirmed that 65% of the young that were in the wild came from nests that had at least one parent from the recovery program, which is insane to me that it's 65% yeah. after a couple of years. Yeah, um, and then they noted that in just those two years as well, there had been a noted increase of the population at the release site up by 84%, which amazing. So yeah. alongside the breeding efforts, um, they did major conservation efforts, heavily focused. I think they purchased, I can't remember how much land as well. Um, but they've noted that with this huge success, um, it could be applied to other Florida species, including the Cape Sable Seaside Sparrow, which is very exciting. So yeah. this is great news. Um, I did not realize how much success they had with this program. When you sure. read that there is an 84% increase at the release site, um, that, that is absolutely amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's I love a good conservation story, like a positive one. There's so many bad ones out there. It's it's nice to see uh, someone that's been very successful. Some really cool tidbits on there, partly that, you know, that the habitat was decent enough that these birds just took to it so quickly. Um, usually we think of, you know, the the big issue with a lot of these conservation issues is lack of habitat, especially when we're talking about Florida, where development and, you know, water use is such a huge issue. And then that these birds just, they just, they released them and bam, immediately, they just were, were doing their thing back to as if they had been there the whole time. Just a, a fantastic story. And 500 from a population of a dozen or so is just absolutely mind-blowing, as you say. Yeah. Yeah, I'm very grateful that you found this article because this yeah. has, like made me feel so much better <laughs> like, with all that's going on in the world. I was like, oh, yay. I've been doom scrolling. <laughs> yeah. Especially yeah. about like a grassland species. Like I yeah, feel yeah, like yeah. it's always doom and gloom with grassland species in particular. Like it's such an overlooked and underappreciated ecosystem. Um, so yeah, it was, it was really great to read this article and you know hear all this good news. The other thing, 
that kind of struck me about this article is just um, how much kind of went into the program, right? It's like, it's beyond just like the captive breeding. Um, like you're saying, Sarah, like there's, it's important to like get the habitat too, right? And like uh, and make sure that the habitat isn't pristine. It seems like that's a big part of why it was so uh, successful is because they were able, able to not only breed in captivity, but then also like release into like pristine habitat. So I don't know. It, it, and like the last paragraph of the article is just like 15 organizations that took part in this program. It's yeah. Wild. Yeah. I started to list them all and I was like, okay, it's going to take, <laughs> it's take too long. Read all have, of these organizations. We have, we have to keep this to like an hour. <laughs> <laughs> what yeah. I remember being a big threat to the Florida grasshopper sparrow that at some point seemed like it was really going to sink them was um, the, the invasive fire ants from South America oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, w- that they would basically, the, gra- the breeding adults just could not protect their, the babies, the nestlings from the ants that would raid the nests. And so it was looking really grim for a while, still is, you know, very precarious, but I didn't see anything about the ants in uh, the article, I don't, unless I missed it. I just wonder what's going on there. Those, those ants are, they're, they're really not going away. <laughs> yeah. And they're there. That's right. So I, w- I do wonder what's going on, what happened there, how the, um, the folks that are, that are working on that project are, are dealing with them. Seems like yeah, they're having success. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I talked to someone, I guess it was, you know, we were talking earlier before we started recording how it's hard to get a sense of time anymore, especially in the last two years. Uh, I talked to someone who was doing this work with the Florida Wildlife Commission. Um, and, and we talked about fire ants. And he said that they, like, the best way to get rid of them is just to like, pour boiling water. Mm, over their mm-hmm. over their nests and that usually does the job which i thought was you know delightfully simple um but yeah i, I don't know I, I guess the hope is that the the population does well enough that if a few nests are taken by fire ants then it's not going to be such a huge loss for the the population as a whole right so um 500 birds i don't know if that's enough it probably isn't it cert- almost certainly isn't but you know seems like they're getting there and especially if the population jumped the way they did in the last couple of years, then, you know, maybe that's a, a problem that is sort of solving itself to some extent. Uh, I have no idea. That's a good question, Frank. I did try for, for Florida grasshopper sparrow once in oh, yeah. near or in um, Three Lakes, I think it was called Three Lakes Wildlife Management Area. Um, it's a good place for some of those, some birds, in, you know, in terms of like birding strategy you can get like bachman sparrow and red cockaded woodpecker there and i wanted to get those birds and those were lifers for me and Mm -hmm. then i tried for i didn't have a lot of time but we tried for um the florida grasshopper sparrow and at some point listening to a lot of recordings online i felt like i could tell the difference um (laughs) you know like if i did hear it between the the florida grasshopper sparrow and and the other grasshopper sparrows it's like a little slower or something the song i mean Oh, really? Um, I, I can't remember now. I, I, I don't remember, but it, the, supposedly there's an appreciable difference in how they vocalize, but I, I didn't. I think that the places where they truly were, there was very few left at that time, um, were like not really accessible. Yeah. Um, for good reason. So anyway. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, it is interesting, though, just to, to shine a spotlight on grasshopper sparrows as a whole. On Twitter, there was an interesting thread. I don't know if you all saw it. Um, from uh, Alice Boyle, who is a, a bird researcher out in the uh, out in Kansas, um, who is doing work on grassland birds, and she notes that grasshopper sparrows there, especially in central Kansas and the Kanza, are, are not doing very well at all, and mm. for reasons having to do with you know encroachment of woody plants and things like that, um, which is what's really hurting them where I live. 
Um, I still have a few. I ran my breeding bird surveys uh, this year, this month, and um, I I did not have as many grasshopper sparrows as I usually do. And I think mm. one of the issues is because like people just let their pastures grow up, and so they get yep. all these weedy, these um, small shrubby trees. And the, once those are there, the grasshopper sparrows don't like that at all. You know, they like pasture, and um, so it's not all not all roses. I don't want to you know put a damper on what is actually a really wonderful conservation story, but um, you know, grassland species, as Miko says, are are probably underappreciated and, and a real concern. Yeah, I think that's like the Midwesterner, and like, cause I think that's the impression yeah. that I've gotten about grassland sparrows. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. growing up in the Midwest too is like, especially from older birders. Um, in addition to, the, we know like uh, that this data, the, uh, sorry, that the species is rapidly declining in a lot of like the you know its, it's native grasslands, mm-hmm. but even just like the. What hits me harder sometimes is like those anecdotal things of like we used to have like grass and yeah. sparrows used to be such a common species <laughs> in so many places across the Midwest and Kansas is like a good example um, of like a native prairie. Um, yeah, it's, it's really a bummer. But I guess another way of framing that is like it makes this news even better, like that this right. is kind of a shining <laughs> beacon, right? This is like a bastion of hope. I think I've talked a lot on the podcast about how I think it's really exciting. It's a really exciting time to be part of migration science right now. Uh, but I don't think I've ever really explained fully, like in detail, why that's true. Um, I think a lot of people are very aware, uh, even just from using their phones, that tracking technology has become smaller and more precise. And obviously, this is spilled over into the bird world where people are putting trackers on individual birds. You know, we have these studies that are constantly kind of coming out uh, that explain the full annual cycle of birds, and oftentimes they're super surprising. Um, We also have all these ongoing efforts to synthesize banding data. Um, But while all that's going on, I feel like there's other things that kind of fly under the radar. um, Uh. In in particular, no pun intended there. (laughs) Um, This, you know, things like computing advances or advances with machine learning allow us to use big data in new ways. Um, and then there's also particularly in movement ecology, I feel like there's this cultural shift of data sharing that's really exciting. So there's mm-hmm. this uh, site called MoveBank that's actually made specifically for this where researchers can upload their movement data and have it publicly available stored so that people can use it in other projects. Um, and so all these things are kind of converging into what some are calling the golden age of tracking. And there's a paper mm-hmm. that came out this past month, which I'm a co-author on, and it was led by some of my mm-hmm. former colleagues at the National Audubon Society, that I think that it just really embodies this moment that we're in. So the study essentially uses a three-step process to integrate different types of migration data in order to estimate migratory movements across the full annual cycle for 12 different species. And these species range taxonomically and in terms of size, you know, passerines, waterfowl, raptors. And so essentially, I'm skipping over some details here, but they use the tracking and banding data from individual birds to quantify migratory connectivity. And that's essentially the proportion of birds migrating between uh, specific breeding and non-breeding regions. And they integrated that information with eBird occurrence data to estimate the likely paths that each species takes during migration. And so when they estimated those results, or sorry, when they evaluated those results, uh, they found that it was beneficial to integrate those data for uh, most of the species. Um, And that in particular, it was beneficial for birds that migrate over water or birds that migrate over areas that don't have a lot of, you know, really sparse eBird data. Mm -hmm. And so the take home here is that combining tracking and banding data with modeled community science data leads to better information about migration, which I just think is so cool. Like the study in itself is really exciting. 
you know, not only do we have these various tools for looking at migration, but we're at this moment where we're starting to combine them and like integrate different streams of data. And then also, I think that this paper really speaks to this culture, this culture that I was talking about earlier of kind of data sharing. The list of authors is super long. Um, there's this, it's this huge collaborative effort across like 32 different organizations. And I think it's a tribute to that. So I just see this paper as kind of like where migration science is kind of heading. And it's, I, think, I think it's really exciting, basically. Amigo, you call it the golden age of uh, tracking. It is also the golden age of really cool maps. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing visualization of all this data that I absolutely love as a hobby birder and not really much of a, a scientist, a, a science, a, a friend of science. Um, yeah, uh, just so such cool data visualization. Um, the map geek in me just absolutely loves it. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think a lot of like those eBird status and trends tools that are coming out where, yeah. you know, if you just Unreal. take the occurrence data, like the bird was here, it wasn't here. If you map that over time, you kind of see the movements of an individual species, which I just think is, you know, those are fascinating. I can watch this all day. <laughs> yeah, right. It's hypnotic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I really think the application of machine learning is fascinating. Sure. Tech is always advancing, but applying stuff that you wouldn't normally think you would apply to like certain areas of research. Like when I think of machine learning, I do not think of birding. And hearing it utilized is really, really exciting. So I have a question about the nitty gritty of co-authoring a paper with a lot of different people and organizations. That sounds yeah. awful to me. So like I, I've <laughs> co-authored one paper before in the humanities. Um, and it's it's difficult enough working with like one other person. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. how how do you how do you do that? How do you manage so many different um just just what insights can you give? Is it is it as crazy as it sounds? Is it like surprisingly intuitive? Do people play nice? What's that like? <laughs> can can I add a question onto this that I think Go for you, it, yeah. you see this expanding, like the collaboration efforts, especially yeah. in academia, since it's so competitive. I find this to be really interesting. Yeah. So do you see papers like this where you have multiple individuals coming together to author continuing? So, yeah. That was going to be my question too, Sarah. I'm glad you asked. That. Both really great questions. Um, I'll start with your question, Frank, and say that I think it really, so I, I should say like my role on this paper in a lot of ways was kind of uh, managing those relationships to some extent. Like I was kind of helping to discover what uh, tracking data were out there as part of like the Audubon's Migratory Bird Initiative and kind of building those relationships with data holders. That being said, like leading the actual paper, um, I got to give shout outs to the lead authors, uh, Tim Meehan and Sarah Saunders, because they managed a lot of that. Former ABA podcast guest, Sarah Saunders. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think they really, I think it really varies by paper. And like this, I, I have a very limited look into this because I wasn't leading the paper, but um, mm. it seems like Sarah and Tim like really just managed that really well. And I, I just think it, it depends on the personalities, basically. Um, and, the, and then to your question, Sarah, about like, will this expand? I mean, I don't, I was actually just talking about this with my lab earlier, like last, last week. I feel like we're really on the cusp of like these big papers with like a lot of names. I mean, they've happened in the past, but I think even just like a generation or two ago within academia, they were very rare. Um, and mm. the, just because um, the culture has shifted, like yeah. 
a multi-author paper used to just not be like looked at in the same way that it is now. Like now mm, I think people mm. look at that as, oh, they can manage those different personalities and they can, they are willing to collaborate with other people. Uh, whereas that used to, it used to kind of dilute your uh, contribution. Right. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm hopeful. I don't know. I'm a, I'm a young <laughs> and probably green, like, you know, naive uh, academic, uh, but I'm hopeful that it's, it's changing and moving in that direction of, collaborative efforts it really does feel like that is it is essential for this kind of work i mean part of it is that we all have a goal in mind and that's bird conservation and understanding more about birds and applying this science to the broader goal of you know conserving biodiversity uh across the world and so i think when researchers have that as sort of their core goal then it's going to make projects much more I don't know. Everyone's going to be willing to give a little bit more. It feels like, but but I don't know. I'm not an academic. I only my wife is an academic, so I kind of see this stuff <laughs> on the other side. She's not a not a um, not a biological science academic, but it's uh yeah, it's it's an interesting dynamic for sure. Totally, and I think that's true. And I, I think it. I don't know if this is my perspective as someone who works in like migration ecology, or if this is actually true. But it feels like because of the grand scale of migration like it makes mm -hmm. sense to me that it would be like you have to collaborate like it feels how essential yeah yeah, yeah. And, and so i i kind of see it so yeah from my perspective it's kind of leading the way in in some regards like in terms of data sharing and stuff like that but yeah I, again i don't know if that's true or if that's just my perspective and maybe birding has always kind of had that as well, you know, the, the culture of birding has always been sharing information, right? That is totally. sharing birds mm. that we've seen, sharing rare birds, sharing rides to those birds or to birding locations. Like that's always been kind of baked into the birding cultural. And, you know, so many of these academics are birders too, like hobby birders, in addition to being, you know, ornithology academics. And so it's almost like that the kind of culture of birding is kind of influencing academia. A little bit. I don't know. Maybe that's just sort of a hopeful thought for me, but I don't know. I don't know. And maybe single authored papers will be called suppressors in the Suppress future. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> for sure. You're suppressing your data. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, congratulations on that publication. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, We're right. always happy to have you uh, promote your stuff here, Miko. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Yeah. I, was, I felt like a little self serving to like, but I, but honestly, like, I just thought, uh, I don't know, especially because I wasn't lead author. It felt like not as self-serving. And I just think I do general, genuinely think it's like a really exciting step for where the science is heading. Like it's, it's, it's a cool mark in time of like where the migration science is at. For sure. My article is from The Guardian. It's about in Britain, there have been several sightings lately throughout the country, mostly in the Somerset region of the red-billed Leothrix, people are familiar with that bird. Uh, so there's some speculation, anxiety, you know, such and such about whether the bird will become, that species will become established in Britain. It's, 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 a really, it's actually really a beautiful bird, uh, if people know it. It's, it's, it's an interesting, it has an interesting global distribution. It's like native to China and various areas in the Himalayas, but it's, it's been introduced and has become established in Japan. Also in most of the larger Hawaiian islands, I think, definitely pretty widespread in, in Hawaii. 
Um, and it's also in other parts of Europe, like in, in mainland Europe, it's in like France, Italy, Portugal, Spain, maybe some other places. So it, it's a cage bird that escapes and establishes itself. Um, so that's what the article's about. It said that it is most similar in habits to robins, European robins, blackbirds, and I think black caps. So those are the species, which are, I believe, really quite common birds. Uh, so those are the species that it could present a, a threat to. So that's what the article was about. And it kind of, the thing that it kind of made me wonder about is in the UK, how does, like from a birding perspective, how does it affect listing when a bird like this sort of like comes into the consciousness of the UK? <laughs> so like, Classic are there UK questions. birders going to twitch it yet or are they waiting because like there's not really an aba <laughs> <come to> them. <laughs> in the uk i think the closest organization to aba is the uh rs um yeah or the, the bou the, 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 the british RSBP. union I, I don't know oh okay exactly all right sure. i'm never i mean there's no one-to-one um so yeah it's, exactly it's exactly exactly you know how how they fit yeah so i just kind of wondered that i know like i don't know if you guys i don't I should have looked this up. Um, there's a YouTube documentary about like listing in the UK or it's a documentary on YouTube, I should say. And there's basically like one guy who sort of like keeps track. Do you guys know yeah. this? There's like Lee Evans. Lee, Lee Evans. Yeah. Lee, yeah, exactly. Have you seen it's it? A, it, it? No, I'm familiar with the with the it's like Twitchers or something like that. Is what it's called. Yeah, that sounds right. It's it's and, really um, cool. It's so yeah, crazy. And Lee Evans is a is a complicated character in the British. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he's sort that. of like he keeps <laughs> lists of like what like for really the top listers he keeps lists of who has seen what birds and you yeah, have to yeah. like verify with him he, like he he'll chase like almost every yeah. bird yeah he's like a vigilante almost of a like top bit. listers like like there's like guys in the documentary who are like i did see it lynn uh lee i i swear i did you know and he's like mm, i don't know <laughs> so i oh, just wow. wonder like how how <laughs> how the red build Leothrix is playing out in the UK right now among murders. <laughs> That's an interesting angle. That's a different angle than I thought you were going to take on this one, Frank. But I okay. I, what I angle like did you think I was going to take? Well, just like the idea of uh, invasive species more generally, and how this one is apparently, according to the the paper, like really loud and like kind of crowding out other native songbirds in the area. Um, I, I don't know. We just have such complicated feelings about invasive species a lot of times, and. You know, whether it ends up being like a really dangerous um, invasive species to kind of local boards or whether it's sort of like our, I don't know, rock pigeons or even rose ring parakeets to a little to some extent in Great Britain. Yeah. Sort of like a, almost a benign uh, presence. Um, I, I don't know. It's still too early to tell with this bird. Yeah, yeah. It might not become established. I mean, it's there's yeah, like exactly. a handful of sightings. Yeah. And apparently the article said that... Um, there had like I think some were purposefully released in the UK in the past and they did not establish themselves. Okay. Yeah. But it was a while ago, and so there maybe there's better, more disturbed habitat for them now. I don't know. Um it did compare them to like the rose ring parakeets in the UK. That's just like they're everywhere. They're all over the place um, now. Yeah. Right, right, right. So it said, uh, is this the next rose ring? That's how the article was framed, actually. Yeah. Is this the next rose ring parakeet? So so can I ask a question that may yes. open a can of worms? And if Please. it does, we can Love just it. cut it. it. Okay, with climate change, how do you guys have any idea how many more, quote, invasive species we have? And if eventually we're just 
going to have to get rid of that term because climate change is going to make living irrelevant. irrelevant. It's going to kind of make it irrelevant to have an invasive species because everything's just going to have to move. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, Is it or is it? I don't know. You know, some species have been moving north um, in number like purple swamp hen, for instance, in Florida. Mm. Um, They've been slowly creeping north and probably will end up breeding in Georgia, maybe even South Carolina at some point. Um, I mean, all this Limkin explosion that we're seeing all over the, the continent right now, do those count as invasive? Because they're using the invasive apple snails and they're moving into places that we would never have expected them and like breeding, like they're breeding in Louisiana now when they weren't maybe five years ago. Like, does that count as invasive? Or maybe it doesn't because they are, you know, they're a native North American bird, but they're in a place where they're not necessarily quote unquote supposed to be i, yeah, I don't know i don't am know I using the term invasive incorrectly like I, I totally could be um i i'm i think there's a spectrum of how people use it yeah so yeah. i i don't know but that's i don't know that's my doom and gloom thoughts for you <laughs> well there's i think I, I i'm with you like that's definitely an interesting question i think there's other layers to it because so climate change is happening right mm-hmm. and then there's also like the world is urbanizing which leads mm-hmm. to like more development which is another there's like a feedback loop there too like those things are connected in a lot of ways yeah. um um yeah and so i don't know it's 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 an interesting interesting question to layer with like those landscape level changes that are happening across all those ecosystems as well yeah. um I don't know. I don't think anyone knows. It's a, I think it's a great question. Sarah. Right. Yeah. The, the, the funny thing about climate change just in general is that it very much is this experiment that is going on. We don't really have a real idea of what's going on. And if, you know, if if I were not a resident of Earth, I might be interested in seeing how this experiment plays out. But uh, as it is, I'm kind of we're kind of stuck in this experiment, which is kind of anxiety inducing. Um, but yeah, how these how these birds react is uh, it's an open question. And then it like varies by system too, right? Like, yeah, the, I was first made aware of this species um, because I, they have uh, established in Hawaii, right? Yeah, yeah, yes. well established in Hawaii. well established. Mm-hmm. And but then I always I was also reading like I think they were introduced to Australia and then just never established. I could have that wrong. Huh, interesting. But, like so, context that matters too. Yeah, like yeah, yeah, the same species, just different ecosystems. It's it's hard to know what you know, a, a species, a non-native species that is introduced, like causes it to, you know, expand or not, or to kind of blink out because we've had those in North America as well. Uh, crested mina in Vancouver. Um, mm, they were there yeah, for a while and then they just sort of disappeared. And budgerigars um, in Florida. In Florida. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's a bunch of species like that, that, you know, rose to become established for a couple decades, three decades, and then just kind of, Went away. The rise we don't really and know fall why. of the budgie empire. The budgie. That's right. There's probably a really good book written on. Really <laughs> I mean, as far as invasive species go, you could do worse than the red-billed Leothrex. I think at least it's a nice-looking one. Yeah, yeah. You could have boa constrictors. Like could, yeah, right. yeah. entirely worse. Way yeah. worse. I think my other thing about invasive species in general is like we often jump to demonizing the species, like the animal itself. Invasive has a pejorative... Yeah, um, totally. But, like, that... Let's demonize the process. Like, this was introduced (laughs) by human activity. It's like, uh, if it does establish, it's going to be because of, you know, disturbed habitat. I don't know. Yeah, it's hard. 
even like starlings, like, and I don't know, this is a controversial thing for a lot of burgers, but like, <laughs> there are very few cases where I understand demonizing like the actual animal. Like it's always yeah. a process of like some human imbalance or like, you know, bad decision making. Right. The bird is just doing what birds do. Right. Singing, nesting, going on, carrying on. Yeah. Did you guys know that from supposedly someone, I think Ted told me this, there's a record of like European starling is, is a code five bird in the ABA area because there is a record of a vagrant from before yeah. starlings before they were, were established, established yeah. in the in ABA Alaska. area. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, a wild, just, a wild starling, a real starling. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just kind of funny factoid. All right, should we move on to the question Wait, of the month? Really quick, I want oh, to go no, back no, to please, this. Miko, do Wait, it. This Lee character. Wait, just really quick. <laughs> <laughs> we could probably do a whole podcast on him. So, he, get him on, get him just, on, Nate. Oh my god. <laughs> just to be clear, like he's basically an unofficial like eBird reviewer. Like he's keeping checklists. Oh, it's, this on. is pre eBird. Yeah, no, I know, so I know but like yeah. That he what gave I'm guess I'm guessing confused on like what gives him the authority like why took it um yeah I just, he's just I been imagine. doing it for so long that <laughs> I think he just kind of grandfathered into the being the authority for the most part and everyone was like yeah okay at least someone's doing it and okay. that's sort of what happened it's like yeah he keeps really good notes he keeps track of all this stuff <laughs> even if he is kind of a a character then you know at least we're getting something out of it okay <laughs> it's that's part, my yeah. understanding. You know, it is certainly controversial. I don't know to what extent. UK that's, listeners that's can, still, can let us know. Yeah, I mean, is, it's yeah. a smaller area. So, you know, there's like a vagrant. It, the really top listers in Everyone's the UK. There. Can, yeah. yeah, exactly. Sure. So that's part of it. And it's like, you know, the social aspect of those, those really big chases is like converges so that like, every, like yeah. Nate said, everyone can be there. So that's like that's like a factor. I don't know. It's just a UK. I just thought it was See, really interesting the, and fascinating. Yeah. I don't know to what extent that's still going on. Yeah, exactly. I don't know where he has this hold UK over the, the UK birding community that he used to, or I, I have no idea. But I know that he's like <laughs> like a big character in that movie, for instance. And yeah. um, yes, kind of generally speaking. Yeah. Okay. Sorry <laughs> to bring us back. Are you nervous you're going to get called out for some bird you spotted in the UK years ago? <laughs> yeah, you could. You could. Lee's coming for you, Miko. <laughs> <laughs> Terrifying. I am the new owner of a new used car, um, a Prius, which I feel is like a very birderly car. I feel like I'm totally into the birding community now. Not that I wasn't before, but I'm really into it because a lot of birders have Prius. Um, and I've been driving it around and I did my breeding bird survey on it. And, um, you know, there's things I like about it. I like the the mileage. I like the, the eco signaling to some extent. Um, but you know, as a, as a birding car, the, it's not great because the front window is really extremely slanted. So you get some distortion looking out the front window. Mm. Um, it doesn't have a, a sunroof. I know you can get that, but in the back, in the back is kind of shaped weird. It's not ideal for birding. You know, I'll keep it. It's it was a hand me down for my in laws, so it was it was it's great. It came to us in in fortuitous circumstances. In any case, what do you think are the best features of an ideal birding vehicle? Quiet. Quiet. There you go. Quiet's a good oh, one. Chris has that. That's a good one. Okay, I have an unconventional one. Yeah, go um, for it. I and this is this is this happened because I broke my um, what's it called tripod. Mm -hmm. um, and so I only had the head and the scope and 
I have been using the hood of my car as to like level to like put my right. scope on. Nice. And I have a 2000 RAV4, which has kind of a curved like hood or like, mm-hmm. I don't know what it's called. Yeah, the top of the car. So like a flat one would be better. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> if, if, so you can use it in a pinch when you don't have your tripod. Yeah. Oh, well, that's good. Yeah, I like that feature. I also think being able to sleep in your car, like ideally having, mm. and obviously holding all your gear is great. So yep. big trunk space. Big yes. Trunk space. Yeah. Yeah. I remember talking about this or more listening to him talk about it with um with George Armstead once. Oh yeah, and I've had this he, same discussion with George. Yeah, Armstead, okay, actually. all right. Maybe so maybe George you know, talks about cars with everybody. I don't, I don't know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, he's just he just spent a lot of time thinking about this yeah. question, and he. The one, the one, I don't remember a lot of what he said, but the one suggestion that he had, there's not a car like this, but he was the ideal birding vehicle he felt should be see-through. So you can just like see everywhere. (laughs) Yeah. So that's kind of interesting. I don't even know if I agree, but it's, I don't know. That's kind of interesting to think about. Like, like, imagine if you could have like a clear car. Yeah. Just like see its engine, I guess, and then like every (laughs) bird everywhere and all everything around you. I don't know. Birds are running into it. (laughs) Yeah. Oh you no! Put the lines you put on the windows. <laughs> oh god! Yeah, that's right. You would need bird-friendly, like need bird-friendly like, like stickers all over yeah, your car. All over your car. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we already have bird stickers on our cars for the most part, but uh, this would just be all over. <laughs> that brings that yeah. brings that brings up a story that I I had uh, many years ago. I was going to a friend's wedding in Key West, Florida, and so my wife and I flew into Miami, and we rented a car, and we were going to drive the road all the way from Miami to Key West. And I was stoked because, you know, birds, ocean all over there, great vistas, great mm-hmm. opportunities for birds. And so yeah. we went to the car rental place and um, we got our car. And what they gave me was like this Dodge Charger. It was like this muscle car looking thing. Mm. And so I sat down in it. And they like, the seats are so low. Like I sank practically to the floor and uh. the windows are super tiny, right? Oh. It is like, they're like portholes. And I was like, no, this is not going to work. I'm not going to be able to bird <laughs> down this road with this car. So I drove um, around the block and I was like, I immediately realized that this was not going to work. And I took it back to the rental car agency. I was like, can you please give me something else? Like, I can't, I'm not going to drive this car. I don't like driving this car. And um, they laughed and I was like, I, I accepted it. Um, <laughs> and they ended up giving me a PT Cruiser. I don't know if you remember PT Cruisers, oh, <laughs> like in the 90s, kind of funky looking <laughs> 40s, nouveau, modern car. Um, but I mean, they're, they're ugliest apologies to all the PT cruises owners who are listening. (laughs) They're so ugly, but they have massive windows. Like the windows are huge and they're really, really good for birding. And I really enjoyed Uh driving the PT cruiser down the road to Key West, looking out the window at all the migrating birds. Cause this was in October and there were a lot of migrating falcons and osprey and and cool stuff. Oh, that's a really good time. Um, And it was also really good to easy to break into because I locked the keys in the car at one state park and I was able to kind of finagle the window to get the to unlock the door so that's another point in this favor if you're jumping out to look at a bird and you leave the keys and you lock them in there so pt cruiser if you can find them it's a, it's an ugly car but it's actually very good for birding it's a double-edged sword the uh easy to break into one that's right yeah, yeah. you don't want to leave your optics in there but no, uh, you don't want to advertise that really no maybe not i don't know if they make pt cruises anymore i think they stopped years ago because they you know, they didn't sell very well. I don't remember, but the front the front windshield is more or less vertical, and uh, yeah, really good birding car. I'm just thinking about a PT Cruiser driver 
being so mad listening to this podcast. <laughs> you told them their car's ugly and easy to break into, <laughs> but it has great windows. We are we are not going to get the Dodge, uh, the Chrysler yeah. <laughs> sponsorship. I'm remembering when I was in California Gulch, you have to have high clearance for an ideal. Oh an yeah, ideal. that's there you an go. important that's one. Another one, and I think I've heard some birders say they like if they really go off road a lot, they'll like put like like steel plates or something under their car to like protect wow. it underneath. Right. So yeah, you need to have four wheel drive you if you want to be a birder <laughs> in North Carolina because they go on the beach. You can drive yeah. on the beach. I just always want. Stuff the sunroof because i imagine myself dramatically just standing up and using my binoculars <laughs> like on a safari or something so yeah. that would be that would be a cool class in reality it's actually kind of awkward to stand up inside the car through the sunroof but in your yeah. imagination it, it looks really cool yeah <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much miko frank sarah this was a great conversation um i'll have links to all the stuff that all the people here are doing in the show notes please check them out. Uh, Miko is doing amazing bird migration work. Frank is the editor of Birding Magazine. And please check out Bird bird Shirt Podcast uh, with Sarah and Mo, who has also been on the, on the podcast frequently, who is, who is also great. Um, thank you so much to all three of you. I hope you have a great summer and uh, we'll see you around here again uh, sometime soon. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Sounds man. great, Nate. Thanks. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast, you can support it by supporting the ABA with your membership. There are many benefits that we have talked about at length in this spot, but maybe the most exciting recently has been the archive of the ABA's publications since our beginning in the late 1960s. You can search all of the ABA's magazines for ID tips, site reports, book and media reports, optic stuff, and there's a lot of really great stuff here. And you can get access to it at aba.org slash join. Special shout outs to Morgan Dandy of Laguna Beach, California, Marianne Hung of Irvine, California, and Zoltan and Sam Poloretsky of North Andover, Massachusetts, all of whom recently joined the ABA Noted the Podcast as a reason for doing so. Thank you all so much. Welcome to the ABA. Executive Director of the ABA and Executive Producer of the podcast is Nikki Belmonte, who's disappointed to note that the Buick Skylark is about as scarce these days as Eurasian Skylark on Vancouver Island. Technical production is by John Lowry, who just discovered that the Aston Martin Signet is not named for a fancy symbol, but actually for the baby swans. I'm not, I'm not kidding. The revelation left him mute. Additional help comes from David Hartley and Greg Neese, who spent a doomed effort to convince Plymouth to change the car horn of their Roadrunner to... I don't know why they didn't go for it. You can find us online at aba.org. On social media, most everywhere is American Birding Association. But on Twitter, we are at ABA. You might be aware of the 1980 television show, Night Rider featuring David Hasselhoff and a sentient Pontiac Firebird, Trans Am. But did you know that the Australian version of this show, that the car is named after the noisy Friarbird, and David Hasselhoff's character, Michael Knight, is a wallaby? Questions, comments can come to podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. Till next week.